In partnership with the Treasure Site Areas Grey, welcome everyone to the new season of Live from the Code Bar, recorded from the Code Theme Bar of Fenwood Manor. I'm your guide on this adventure, Rob. And on this second show of the new season, I'm going to take you on an adventure and talk about the Poly- about Polybius, the cipher, the man, and the urban legend. But first of all, like usual, I want to start off with some housekeeping. I want to give a great big thank out, thank you to every one of you who have downloaded and, of course, listened to the first season and our last episode. And I do want to thank you for listening. It's been amazing. I also want to give a great big shout out to the usuals, Nick Spira, who created the show's music, Robert Brewer, who did all the amazing artwork, Stephen Jenner, my brilliant editor, Dustin and Deidre White, who have helped promote the show and helped me look for treasure when I can knock over myself, and my treasure hunting team, Team Fortune of Nick, Lisa and Adam, who are all the best treasure hunters ever. There are so many other more people that I could mention, uh, but obviously if you need to get some more information, obviously visit our Facebook, Twitter and Instagram pages for more shoutouts. Now, on to the show. So we're going to start off with the cipher, the Polybius Square, which is also known as the Polybius Checkboard. It's a cipher that according to Polybius's histories, now Polybius was a real man who I'll talk to about a little bit later, it was invented by the ancient Greeks Cleonexus and Democletus and made famous and further developed and perfected by Polybius himself. The cipher masks plain text characters and replaces them with a smaller set of symbols, usually numbers, which is useful for telegraphy, stenography, and cryptography. The cipher was originally used for fire signaling, allowing for the coded transmission of any message, making it faster and a little bit more secure than just regular plain text. The cipher partitioned the alphabet into five tables with five letters each, except for the last one with only four. There are no surviving tablets from antiquity of this cipher. Letters are represented by two numbers, from one to five, allowing the representation of the 25 characters using only five numeric symbols. The original square, like I said, used the Greek alphabet. Now, however, the modern Latin alphabet is used, but it is the same concept except each letter is represented by its coordinates in the grid. Now, because there are 26 letters of the Latin slash English alphabet, it does not fit nicely into a 5x5 five five square. So usually, when you're doing a Polybius square or Polybius checkboard, uh, two letters must be combined, and those are usually the I and the J letters. So, for example, the word code, C-O-D-E, becomes 1, 3, 3, 4, 1, 4, and 1, 5. Now, a little bit more information will be provided on our Facebook page so you can get a little bit more of a visual look at what that looks like. So that is how the Polybius Square works. But what about its real-life uses and applications? Well, in his histories, Polybius outlines the need for effective signaling in warfare, leading to the development of the square. Previously, fire signaling was useful only for expected, predetermined messages, with no way to convey novel messages about unexpected events. According to Polybius, Polybius, in the 4th century BCE, Arenus Tactius devised a hydraulic semaphore system consisting of matching vessels with section rods labelled with different messages such as heavier, heavier infantry, ships, and corn. This system, which was just slightly better than the old basic fire signal, still lacked the ability to convey a, a very specific message. It relied on set words and set symbols. So therefore, the Polybius Square was used to aid in the telegraphy, specifically with the fire signaling. To send a message, the sender would initially hold up two torches and wait for the recipient to do the same to signal that they were ready to receive the message. The sender would then hold up the first set of torches to his left side to indicate the recipient which tablet or row of the square was to be consulted, 
and then the sender would raise a set of torches on his right to indicate which letter on the tablet was intended for the message. So all both parties would need were the same tablets, a telescope or a tube with the view to looking at uh, real life magnifications and the torches. The Polybius Square has many other uses such as the knock code used to signal messages between cells in prisons by tapping the number on pipes or walls. So it is said to have been used in real life by the nihilist prisoners of the Russian Tsars and also by US prisoners of war during the Vietnam War. And I kind of mentioned how during the Vietnam War they also used Morse code, but the knock code or the Polybius cipher was also very commonly used. Arthur Kostler describes the code being used by political prisoners of Stalin in the 1930s in his anti-totalitarian novel, Darkness at Noon. Costilia had been a prisoner of war himself during the Spanish Civil War. Indeed, it can be signaled in many simple ways, flashing lamps, blasts of sound, drums, or smoke signals. And it's much easier to learn than the sophisticated codes, like I mentioned, Morse code. However, because that is said and far simpler to to use, it's also somewhat less efficient uh, than some of the more complex codes out there. Now, the Polybius Square cipher is by itself a pretty insecure cipher by modern standards. It is a substitution cipher, which characters being substituted uh, for a pair of digits, which is easily broken through frequency analysis. Different variations of the Polybius cipher, uh, Square have since been developed, such as the Playfair cipher, but this is a cipher, the Playfair at least, I want to say for a different show. Polybius the Man lived from around 200 BC to 118 BC, and was a Greek historian of the Hellenistic period. His most famous work is called The Histories, which cover the period of 264 to 146 BC, as well as the Punic Wars in detail. Born around 200 BC, like I said, in Megalopolis, Arcadia, Polybius's father, Lycortus, was a prominent land-owning politician and member of the governing class who became a uh, strategios, who was a commanding general of the Archaean League. Because of this, Polybius was able to observe firsthand during the first 40 years the political and military affairs of Megalopolis, gaining experience as a statesman. In his early years, he accompanies his father while traveling as an ambassador. Lycordus was a prominent advocate of neutrality during the Roman war against Perseus of of Macedon. Lycordus attracted the suspicion of the Romans, and Polybius was subsequently one of the 1,000 Archean nobles who were transported to Rome as hostages in 167 BC and was detained there for 17 years. In Rome, virtue of his high culture and high-born, Polybius was admitted to the most distinguished houses, in particular that of Lucius Armelius Paulus Macedonius, the conqueror in the Third Macedonian War who entrusted Polybius with the education of his sons, Fabius and Scipio, Armenius, who had been adopted for the, by the eldest son of Scipio Africanus. There's a lot of names here that are a little bit under, uh, you might not understand, but, you know, just go with me. Polybius remained on cordial terms with his former pupil, Scorpio, Scipio uh, Armenius, and was among the members of the Scipionic Circle. When Scipio defeated the Carthaginians in the Third Punic War, Polybius remained his counsellor. The Archean hostages were finally released in 150 BC, and Polybius was granted leave to return home. But the next year, he went on campaign with Scipio to Africa, to Africa, and was present at the sack of Carthage in 146 BC, which he later described. Following the destruction of Carthage, Polybius likely journeyed along the Atlantic coast of Africa as well as Spain. After the destruction of Corinth in the same year, Polybius returned to Greece 
Making use of his Roman connections to lighten the conditions there, Polybius was charged with the difficult task of organizing a new form of government in the Greek cities, and in this office he gained great recognition. So, moving on to his famous work, The Histories. The Histories, uh, Polybius's most famous work, which describes the rise of the Roman Republic as a global power in the ancient Mediterranean world. The work includes eyewitness accounts of the sack of Carthage, like I talked, and Corinth, and the Roman annexation of the mainland of Greece after the Achaean War. The histories cover the period 264 BC to 146 BC. It mainly focuses on the year 220 BC through 167 BC, detailing ancient Rome's overcoming of their geopolitical rival Carthage and becoming the dominant Mediterranean force. Books 1 through 5 are the history's introduction, set during Polybius's lifetime and describe political affairs in the leading Mediterranean states during the time, including ancient Greece and Egypt, explaining their interconnections. In Book 6, Polybius describes the political, military, and moral institutions that allowed the Romans to succeed. He also describes the First and Second Punic Wars. Polybius concludes that the Romans are the preeminent power because they have customs and institutions which promote a deep desire for noble acts, a love of virtue, piety towards parents and elders, and a fear of the gods. Polybius, Polybius also details the battles between Hannibal Barker and Scipio Africanus in the Second Punic War, such as the Battle of Ticinus and the Battle of Trebia, the Siege of Sagnuntum and the Battle of Lilibinum, the Battle of Rhone and the Crossing and the Battle of Zama, among others. In Book 12, Polymius discusses the worth of Tiemus' uh, account of the same period of history. He asserts that Tiemus' point of view is inaccurate, invalid, and based in, biased in favor of Rome. In other words, Polymius was a bit of a Greek diva. Nonetheless, Polybius was widely read by both uh, the Romans and the Greeks alike, and was widely quoted by Strabo, who wrote in the 1st century BC, and Athenians in the 3rd century AD. Polybius is important because of his analysis of the mixed constitution, or the separation of powers in government. His in-depth discussion of checks and balances to limit power, and his introduction of the people, which was influential on Montesquieu's The Spirit of Laws, John Locke's Two Treaties of Government, and of course, the framers of the United States Constitution. So right now, we're going to take an areas gray break. So right now, I want to take a quick break here and talk a little bit more about the new partnership between the Code Bar and Areas Gray website. As I mentioned before in my last podcast, a few months ago, I reached out to Gray, the creator of the site, and it's just amazing. It's a combination travel blog for treasure hunters that shares amazing information on real life treasure hunts, uh, armchair treasure hunts. And it has its own forum. It now also has a way to listen to Live from the Code Bar podcast right from their site. Now in this new year, Gray will be launching a new treasure hunt called Dead Man's Tale. And I cannot wait to have him on the podcast to talk about it when it's released. So keep your eyes open. So please do go to www.areasgray.com. That's Gray, G-R-E-Y. And read some of the amazing stories. Obviously, I mentioned it, I linked a little bit last week, but uh, last podcast, but... I'm actually one of the guest writers on the site, which is really cool. Follow Areas Grey on Instagram at Areas Grey Treasures, Twitter at Areas Grey underscore, and if you are on Facebook, join the Areas Grey Treasure Hunting Community Group, all of which will be included in the show notes of the podcast. Now, back to the show. Finally, we're going to talk a little bit about the Polybius urban legend. Now, this absolutely has nothing to do with, of course, the cipher, um, but I want to take a few minutes to just obviously talk about it. A lot of this information is a very basic outline of the legend, and mostly it's from Wikipedia. 
Now, if you want to learn more, there are a lot of great websites and even some amazing podcasts out there that I link in my show notes that have talked in detail about the legend. So do definitely make sure that you check them out. Also, I want to say something that the herb, the as I mentioned before, the Polybius Herbal Legend has nothing to do with the cipher or the man himself, but I did think uh, it would be kind of interesting for the show. The urban legend tells of an unheard of new arcade game appearing in the early several suburbs of the Portland, Oregon area in 1981, something of a rarity at the time. The game is described as uh, proving popular to the point of addiction, with lines forming around the machines often resulting in fighting over who would play next. The legend describes how the machines were visited by men in black who collected the unknown data from the machines, allegedly testing responses to the game's psychoactive so psychoactive effects players supposedly suffered from a series of unpleasant side effects including seizures amnesia insomnia night terrors and hallucinations approximately one month after its supposed release in 1981 polybius is said to have disappeared without a trace due to the viral and anecdotal nature of this legend its exact origin is pretty much unclear some accounts claim that the legend originated on the Usenet forums in 1994 or earlier through offline word of mouth, though no recorded evidence exists for either of these claims. The earliest confirmed record of the legend is an entry uh, for the title added to the arcade game resource coinop.org on February 6, 2000. The entry mentions the name of Polybius and a copyright date of 1981, although no such copyright has ever been registered. The author of the entry claims in the description to be in possession of a ROM image of the game and to have extracted fragments of text from it, including the name Polybius. The remainder of the information about the game is listed as unknown and it's about the game section describes the bizarre rumors that make up the legend. Polybius then uh, popped his head up again in September of 2003 issue of GamePro as part of a feature story on video games called Secrets and Lies. This is the first known printed mention of the game, exposing the legend to a mass market audience. The article declared that the existence of the game to be inconclusive, helping both spark curiosity and spread the story. Following the appearance in GamePro magazine, a number of people claimed to have had some involvement with Polybius. In 2006, a man named Stephen Roach claimed that he'd been one of the original programs and that his company developed a game with very intense and cutting edge graphics. However, according to Roach, a boy experienced an epileptic seizure while playing and the cabinets were withdrawn by the company in a panic. Although Roach offered no proof for his claims, his story added details on the gameplay. The alleged original Polybius arcade game has not been proven to exist, but Snopes.com, a popular website cataloging urban legends, concludes that the game is a modern day version of the 1980s rumor of the men in black. In this case, visiting arcades and taking down the names of high scores at arcade games. This led to the hypothesis that the government was hosting some sort of experiment and sending subliminal messages to the players. Magazines of the time period dedicated to electronic gaming make no mention of a Polybius game, and mainstream news also fails to note such a game and the effects it was having on players. In an age of Dungeons and Dragons being a devil's game, this is very highly unusual. While a number of mock-up cabinets and games inspired by the myth do exist, no authentic cabinets or ROM dumps have ever been documented. Ben Silverman of Yahoo Games remarked, Unfortunately, there is no evidence that the game ever existed, no less turned its users into babbling lunatics. Still, Polybius has enjoyed cult-like status as a throwback to a more technologically paranoid era. 
Many skeptics and researchers have differing opinions on why the story of Polybius came to be. American producer and author Brian Dunning believes Polybius to be an urban legend that grew out of a mixture of influences in the 1980s. He notes that two players fell ill in Portland on the same day in 1981, one collapsing with a migraine headache after playing the game Tempest, and the other suffering from stomach pain after playing the game Asteroids for 28 hours straight in a filmed attempt to break the world record that happened both at the same arcade. Dunning records that the Federal Bureau of Investigation raided several arcades in the area just 10 days later where the owners were suspected of using the machines for gambling and the lead-up to the raid involved FBI agents monitoring the arcade cabinets for signs of tampering and recording high scores. Dunning suggests that these two events were combined in an urban legend about the government-monitored arcade machines making players ill. He believes that such a myth must have been established by 1984 and that it influenced the plot of the film The Last Starfighter, in which a teenager is recruited by aliens who monitor him playing a converted, convertly developed arcade game. So was Polybius' game real, or is it just an urban legend? Who am I to say? I'm just a podcaster. As I said, check out the many sites and podcasts I've listed in the show notes for more details that I did not include in this story. So now we've once again come to the end of another show. For all of the information that doesn't make it into the show, uh, as well as the links that I mentioned, please do make sure that you follow the show notes, and please don't forget to like us on Facebook. Please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts, and please help the podcast grow by leaving a rating and review, especially the big one on Apple Podcasts. So until next time, everyone, keep digging.